Hello and welcome to episode 255 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. How's it going, Ian? It's going well, Jason. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. It's been a quiet week for once. Don't say that too loudly. You know how news likes to break moments after we stop. Are you tempting fate? I don't want to tempt the wrath of the thing high atop the whatever. All right. So things that we've been talking about for the past few weeks remain unchanged. Most of the 737-9 MAX aircraft with the door plugs are back in service. Alaska still has one aircraft that is out of service. The I think one. that's the same update I gave. No, well, okay. Let me back up. It has two out of service. One happens to be the accident aircraft that we don't know when it'll come back into service. And the other one is November 918 Alpha Kilo, which is in Greensboro, I assume, for extended maintenance of some kind. And then it will pop back into service when it is ready. So there's one non-door blown off aircraft that Alaska needs to put back into service. But everybody else has put theirs back into service. So what do we fill our time with this week? Well, we fill it with stupid. Oh, yeah. We got some prime, prime This is grade A week. stupid. It is real stupid. And it's a good thing it didn't coincide with the other stupid from the 7.3 because some 7.3s were actually pulled into, pulled into service to fill in for another aircraft that happened to be grounded. A very minimal grounding at just one airline. But we'll get into it. And it may be in, I think... The dumbest, the stupidest, the most needless short aircraft grounding in the history of airplanes. You know what? I'm sure that bar is very high. And when we're done discussing this, please, if you can think of another time, dear listener, when something equally or even more stupid has happened, email us at podcast at fr24.com. Jason, what happened? <sighs> oh, man. So, At least in the US, the United States, since the year 2000, smoking has been prohibited on board all commercial aircraft, all passenger commercial aircraft. You have not been able to smoke. To this day, all aircraft operating in the US are still required, or all commercial aircraft are required to have either a no smoking illuminated sign or a no smoking placard. There are rules that, and they're not needless. There are still stupid people out there who will do stupid things. This is why aircraft still have ashtrays in the laboratories, because stupid people will do stupid things, and you need them to put out their stupid cigarette in the proper place, not the trash. But in this case, all aircraft either need to have an operable lighted sign in the passenger service unit, which is the overhead thing right next to the seatbelt sign, or really these days, the a lot of aircraft have also archaic at this point, no personal electronic device sign. There was a weird period in time where that replaced the smoking sign, but you either need to have a lighted sign or a placard. And in this case, it turned out United's lighted no smoking signs worked too well, which is just a really (laughs) weird thing to say. So the deal here is that United and most every other airline has the no smoking sign hardwired. It cannot be turned off. There will still be a switch 
in the flight deck that someone could go and flip on and off, on and off, and it won't do anything. On an older aircraft, it is hardwired. That switch will not do anything. And on newer aircraft, it's software-defined, where there's still the switch, but the software will prohibit it from actually doing anything. There are rules, there are regulations, there are federal standards that still to this day have not been changed to reflect that smoking is not allowed on board. And that no smoking sign, if the airline opts to have a lighted sign, it is treated the same as a seatbelt sign. And a seatbelt sign must be able to be toggled on or off from the cockpit. For some reason, the no smoking sign is still lumped into that rule and regulation. So the no smoking sign, even though it will never, ever be turned off, must also be able to be turned off unless an airline files for an exemption, which of course it files every airline for every aircraft it operates files for an exemption. So there's one for the 737, for the 767, the A319. And in this case, crucially, there wasn't one for United's A321neo. It seems likely, we don't know this for sure, but somebody at United may have forgotten to file the paperwork to the FAA to exempt the A321neo from having a no smoking sign that can be turned off. And instead of just treating that never to be turned off no smoking illuminated sign as a placard, United or the FAA, we're not really sure which took the action of actually grounding United's relatively small, just five strong fleet of A321neo for about half a day, which really came out of nowhere. People jumped to conclusions because there's a lot of issues with the 321neo and any aircraft with the Pratt & Whitney GTF and United specifically has had all sorts of issues with its brand new aircraft. But they were pulled out of service very quickly. United's flight status said for operational inspection, and they were able to eventually swap all of their A321neo flights out for other aircraft. Some went out without delay, some took a few hour delay. And they provided this statement to me. I quote, we are removing our five Airbus A321neo aircraft from service while we seek FAA approval for the no smoking sign to remain automatically illuminated rather than operated from the cockpit. We're working to minimize the disruption for customers and we expect to cover all of today's A321neo flying with other aircraft types resulting in no cancellations due to this issue today. We hope to have these aircraft flying again shortly. And sure enough, they were flying again shortly. The FAA noted that it was not a safety issue, and, and I'm not quoting anymore here, but the three A321neos were back in service the, the very next day. Very, very stupid situation. Kudos to Seth Miller for putting the pieces together before anyone else really. He has a bot that scours through FAA filings and airworthiness directives. And he spotted this one and said, oh, that timing is real suspicious. And it did indeed happen to be that United filed very suddenly to have these aircraft exempted. But yeah, this has got to be, I challenge you listeners to find me a stupider reason to ground a fleet of aircraft than this, because I, I don't think it's possible. So long story short, we have to have something that tells people not to smoke. We can either have a sign or a lighted sign. If we have a lighted sign, we have to, by rule, have a way to turn off the lighted sign, even though the sign has to stay on all the time. We have to have a way to turn it off. Yeah. But, I mean, there's all sorts of rules and regulations that are very dated. If you want to – well, we'll put a link into the show notes, but David Williams on Twitter, username Stratoduck, put it together, and that the issue revolves, instead of 
updating the rules and regulations because we can't do that. They're assuming that all Part 121 airplanes must comply with Rule 121.317A. However, they overlook that United Airlines aircraft also comply with Part 121.317C. And we're certified in compliance with 25.791A, which allows placards. So why not just treat the light as a placard? Somebody was either very, very insistent that these aircraft must meet specifications until that exemption was awarded, or that someone at United just really dotting their I's, crossing their T's, and didn't want to make any waves. But the whole situation is just... Maybe we filed the paperwork for all the other ones, but we didn't file the paperwork for this one, so we should... We should do that or, or something. I don't know. Yeah, the whole thing is just bizarre. But I never in a million years would have thought an aircraft would be grounded because they can't turn off the no smoking sign. Like, what? I mean, obviously, they didn't like make the announcement to the passengers of those delayed flights. Hi, folks. We're delaying your flights. We're going to swap out the aircraft. Not because anything was wrong in the plane. We could fly right now. But because the no smoking signs can't be turned off. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they didn't say that. Wisely so. But just uh, when you make it sound like a passenger announcement, it gets even dumber is what I'm saying. Yeah. I hope that this is a significant catalyst to have the FAA or, or somebody, whoever would start this to update the rules so that it doesn't matter that the no smoking sign can't be turned off and not have to have airlines file for exemptions for every single aircraft type they put in service because that just does not make any sense. It's mind-bogglingly stupid. On the bright side, at least the FAA doesn't make them file an exemption for every specific aircraft. Not yet. Which sounds like something the FAA would do. Yeesh. Okay. Let's move on from this. Some follow-up to a few stories that we've been talking about recently. When Boeing's CEO, Dave Calhoun, was addressing everyone at the reporting of their financial results, he mentioned that they were moving the supply chain at 38 a month. They were moving the 737 production at 38 a month. It turns out that there's some clarification there needed because Boeing's 737 suppliers are operating at a rate of 38 aircraft a month. However, when you look at how many airplanes are actually coming out of the factory in Renton, there's roughly 20 to 25 airplanes being constructed each month. So what they've now said is that the second half of 2024 is when they hope to be producing 38 airplanes per month. So I'm not sure how that squares with the FAA saying you can't increase the rate if they're not actually building 38 airplanes a month, but they're just asking their suppliers to supply them with enough components to build 38 a month. I guess it's month. an aspirational rate, like we aspire to be able to build 38 aircraft or we have the production physical capability to do it, but competently, we cannot do that right now, I guess is the situation. And that's what they said. I mean, that might be Jason's take on it, but that's actually what they said. Basically, we had to slow things down to get all of these things right that we're figuring out. The question that I have that I don't think Boeing has answered yet is, does that mean you can go, or the FAA needs to answer, I guess, does that mean you can build airplanes at 38 a month? Or does that mean you're stuck at 20 to 25 that you're actually building at the moment? And I'm not, I'm not sure that either the FAA or 
Boeing can answer that at the moment. And that's what interests me because airlines are already extremely upset that they're not going to be getting the aircraft that they ordered anywhere near on time. And that's at 38 a month. So if you're actually building aircraft at 20 to 25 a month, and that's where you need to stay because the FAA says, no, we're not going to let you increase until we're satisfied, that becomes a much bigger issue. And we still don't know when the FAA is going to allow Boeing to ramp up to their previous target of 40 plus aircraft a month. We don't know what the metrics are for success. Right. When does Boeing get to do that? All we know is that they can't do it, but there doesn't really seem, to, at least publicly, to be like a, a checklist of here's what you have to do to get to the point where we will take the nanny cam offline, basically. It's just, it is what it is, and we, we don't know how long it will last for. Yeah. I mean, we'll, I guess, just have to wait and wait and see on that one. Let's see. We covered this slightly, but now there's a bit more information courtesy of the NTSB as they've continued their research into it. And I'm skipping ahead. Sorry, Jason. Let's talk about the NTSB, but in a different context. This week, the NTSB came out swinging on the 25-hour CVR rule because the FAA's proposed rule would put 25-hour cockpit voice recorders in new aircraft only not existing aircraft. And the NTSB says that is just not good enough. That doesn't make any sense because as we know, aircraft can be in service for decades. So a 737 MAX or an A320neo or 787 that you put into service today will be operating 2050, presumably. So why wouldn't a, a change in the cockpit voice recorder requirements that we make today affect aircraft that are just going into service and have been in service for a year or two or five years that will be in service for decades. The NTSB, like you said, Ian, they came out swinging here. They published a list of NTSB investigations hampered by an overwritten cockpit voice recorder since 2018. And the list is unfortunately longer than you would want it to be. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, four, fifteen items on this list ranging from the January 5th rapid decompression of a 737 MAX with Alaska to a whole bunch of runway incursions. Some of them, the CVR was overwritten because of delayed notifications. One of them is a hard landing. One of them is a loss of control in flight. Another is an electrical system malfunction, another turbulence encounter. These are all voice recorders that were lost literally to time and to nothing else. The two-hour limit that was artificially imposed on these recorders hit and data started to be recorded over the existing data. And that anything that recorder could have provided in that investigation was just artificially deleted. Yeah. There are some concerns about the requirement. And as part of the comment period on the FAA's proposal, Multiple organizations have waited, not just the NTSB. You have manufacturers like Bombardier, Embraer, and ATR expressing concern about how this new requirement could affect smaller aircraft that fly shorter stage lengths. So think like the ATR-42 or ATR-72, where those aircraft are operating one to two hour sectors, where they're saying, well, this introduces all sorts of complications. Embraer says that it would take months months to select one of these recorders. Oh man, you better get started today. And they want, you know, more time to which is to reasonable to select. Yeah, so I think some of these things they all come out in negotiation about how industry is going to implement it. 
One of the comments came from Alaska Airlines, and Jason, you flagged this particular one, not for so much what it says, but for the date that it was submitted. Yeah, it was submitted December 4th, 2023. You might remember, actually, I'm sorry, the letter is dated February 2nd, 2024, just three days later on February 5th. As we just noted, the door blew off or the door plug blew off one of Alaska's aircraft. And and famously, the cockpit voice recorder was overwritten because the circuit breaker was not pulled on that. So any information the NTSB would have gleaned from that recorder was overwritten. So just really interesting timing that thankfully Alaska did not object to this. Alaska said, yeah, all right, this is great. It will improve the aircraft accident or accident investigation process and will put the US airline industry more in line with international regulations. So because remember, the EASA in Europe already requires this. Yes, this is not something that's coming out of left field. And there is a bit more of an interesting twist from the NTSB's filing. So it states additional fuel to its fire of this is stupid, it should apply to every aircraft. The NTSB says the notice of proposed rulemaking indicates that a retrofit requirement would apply to 29,561 aircraft in the existing fleet. But it doesn't go into the details of what aircraft are in that number. It just kind of seems made up. The NTSB estimates that it would only apply to 13,500 aircraft. So there would be far fewer aircraft to retrofit with these new or enhanced recorders than apparently the FAA or whoever came up with the number in the NPRM is estimating. And it also, in the NTSB comment, says, well, even for these aircraft, if we make maybe a buffer period of five years, let's say, all of the recorders on existing aircraft will be serviced regularly within that time frame. You could just pull them out and swap a new one in, and there won't even be any aircraft downtime more than what's already scheduled. So they're really coming out swinging that none of what the FAA or whoever proposed this in the NPRM is making sense, that there it's far fewer aircraft than is proposed to be impacted. And the impact is actually far less great than is recommended here. It's just, I'm glad the NTSB not just made this comment, but also publicized that it made this comment on social media and brought attention to the fact that, hey, if this goes through as is, there will be aircraft operating for decades the same old way that they have for the past few decades. And that just doesn't make any sense. Right. So let's stick with the NTSB for the moment, because we've got some updates on investigations. Jason, I think you flagged the final report on the crash of the Joby aircraft. Yeah, that's right. So in 2022, one of Joby's eVTOL aircraft was conducting flight testing, flight envelope testing, I believe, in California, pushing above and beyond what the aircraft would ever theoretically operationally see. This investigation concluded that there was a separation of one of the propellers from one of the, I guess you would call propeller assemblies. I'm not sure what you would call it on an eVTOL, but one of the propellers came detached from the hub and actually impacted one of the other hubs. And there was a kind of a cascading failure that resulted in the crash and loss of the aircraft. But what's interesting about this is how the NTSB figured it out. There were all sorts of recording devices on board this aircraft. It's an experimental aircraft doing flight testing. So it had custom recorders from Joby on board. It had consumer-grade NVMe M.2 
SSDs on board, recording information, which unfortunately were lost. But crucially, it had a 360-degree GoPro camera mounted right about where a pilot would sit. This was an unmanned aircraft, by the way, uncrewed aircraft, rather. So there was no one on board. There were no injuries. But the there was a 360-degree, presumably high-definition camera recording everything you would see from the flight deck. And the NTSB was able to re- recover the corrupted data from the GoPro and watch what happened. And using the camera on board, they were able to determine, here's exactly what happened, that the propeller discon- or the prop disconnected from the assembly and impacted other propellers, and there was a cascading failure. And maybe they wouldn't have figured it out, but not for the recording capability on board that aircraft, which is another thing that the NTSB has been hounding for for years and years and years and years to have video recording onboard aircraft. And it makes even more sense when so many aircraft actually already today have video or cameras, multiple cameras outside of the aircraft that simply don't record. So I thought that was very interesting that the NTSB really called out again, like, hey, look, here's literal proof that a video recording helped us identify the root cause of a crash. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting how they went into that. And it goes to show that every time they they put out the call for people to, you know, send video or email them whatever they have, who knows, whatever somebody has, you know, recorded or or seen or that could be the key. I mean, the fact that they were able to to recover this video file and then go, oh, okay, there, that's what happened. It's pretty incredible. The preliminary report for the Atlas Air Flight 95 in-flight engine fire, and I guess I'm using engine fire loosely here because while there was an engine fire, there was supposed to be fire. There just wasn't supposed to be fire there. And there wouldn't have been fire there if the boroscope port plug had been secured properly. Oh, you got to secure your boroscope plugs. You do. So this particular aircraft, N859GT, is a Boeing 747-8 freighter operated by Atlas Air. It had flown to Miami and then undergone maintenance. So an MRO in Miami had gone into the engine a technician had done a boroscope inspection. And a boroscope inspection is basically a camera on the end of a tube that's small enough to fit into very tight spaces. And they look around for things like metal corrosion, cracking, everything's where it's supposed to be. There's no oil where there's not supposed to be oil, things like that. And to allow access to the engine for these boroscopes, there are boroscope port plugs in a variety of location around the engine so that they don't have to snake the camera all the way through the engine. They can access it as easily as possible. Then when they're done, you put these port plugs back. There are maintenance activities for removing, storing, and reinstalling all of these port plugs. And in this particular case, that boroscope port plug was not reinstalled properly and, according to the NDSB, was, quote, unsecured from the combustion diffuser nozzle. And the NTSB report also goes on to say that the burn-through observed on the thrust reverser wall was directly above the open plug port. Mm. So fire was where it was supposed to be. Fire was coming out of the wrong hole. 
I see. So when the initial report said uh, something about a softball-sized hole in the engine, there's supposed to be a hole there. Just maybe not when the airplane's in the air with the engines running, because fire out the wrong hole bad on an airplane. Fire out the wrong hole bad. Yeah, all's well that ends well. They discharged the, the fire bottles, I think. They went back to uh, the origin, and, and, it, and it's fine. But I'm sure the final report by the NTSB will, will dig into where is the engine plug, and was it ever installed after maintenance was done, or did it fall out? Man, this is really like, the, are, are we really going down the missing plug situation again here uh-huh. twice this yep. year already? Oh, all right. Already. And it's only February. Different kind of plug, very different situation. Almost certainly not Boeing's fault, so don't don't look at them. But this is, huh, good old NTSB. Definitely a huh. Let's stick with engines. This is probably the theme of the year, if not the next few years. But we're back on the Pratt geared turbo fan. At the moment, things gumming up the works include supply chains, which is a conversation that we've had over and over and over again. But at the moment, Pratt & Whitney says that its ability to get spare parts for all of its geared turbofan engines has slowed things down. And they're only going to be able to fix those engines as quickly as they can get pieces for them, which all makes sense. I feel like John Madden you know, saying the team that scores the most points is going to win the game. But I, I think it's worth saying that this isn't a, a knowledge issue. It's not a... you know. We don't have an idea of what's wrong here. It's just we don't have the things to fix what's Yes, broken. but it's not all bad news. Reading from an Aviation Week article here, Pratt says, I, I believe they just had uh, – the parent company RTX just had an earnings call this week. But Pratt expects the number of grounded A320 Neos to peak by April 1st. Hopefully not an April Fool's joke, but you never know with this situation. So by April 1st, the number of grounded aircraft should be going down. But that doesn't mean the situation is really going to be resolved anytime soon, unfortunately. It is still taking 300 days, nearly an entire year for an aircraft to be taken off a wing, repaired, and put back on an aircraft. Removals of only started back in September of last year, apparently, according to the article, and engines are not flowing steadily back into the fleet, which is a real problem. Fortunately, Pratt now apparently has 16 global shops that can do the work of repairing these engines, up from 11 a year ago. So that's an actual legitimate good increase. But the parts, getting the parts and doing the work is taking a very very, very long time. This may last through the end of 2026, which is not not great, but they're hoping to get the, the number of days in which these engines are off-wing down from 300 to about maybe 150 in the future. Don't really know, but we'll, we'll oh, have good. to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, great. Only half a year instead of nearly a full year. But we are seeing, again, real impacts Caused by this, Spirit Airlines was supposed to fly to Tulum, Mexico's newest airport, but they're now having to delay that route because it has so many aircraft grounded due to this issue. Now I'm afraid my flight in a couple of weeks to Chicago on, on Spirit, maybe that doesn't happen and we won't be able to have sausages. Oh, no. I know, that would be very sad. So. That would be very sad, but I think I'm booked on a CO, so it should be okay. All right. So hot dogs will be had. Speaking of spirit, and we'll stay in Florida because there is a new aircraft in Florida that has not made it to the United States for quite some time. I tried to check our data 
And the farthest back that I could easily go with a few clicks was 2018. And I couldn't find anything there. So this is the first time a 747-300 has been to the US at least since 2018. That's a long time. But technically, I mean, what is the Boeing VC-25 built off of? 200s. Those are 200s. Is it the 200? It's not the 300? Yeah. Those are okay. 200s. All right. Yeah. It's probably been a very long time. Are there any VIP aircraft that sneak into the country for like the UN General Assembly? Because there are some very odd aircraft, but I think those are like those are mostly gone at this point. There were some SPs. I don't think any 300. So yeah, that's uh, no. yeah. If you know the last time a 747 300 has visited the US, uh, definitely let us know because I certainly can't think of one. So this particular 747-300 was owned by Mtrasur, which is a Venezuelan cargo airline, a subsidiary of Conviasa, which is the state-owned passenger airline. The 747-300, the registration or was, is, I'm, I'm not quite sure. It, anyway, YV-3531. It was seized or seizure proceedings began in 2022 while the aircraft was in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The Argentinian government acted on the US government's seizure order, and the aircraft has been there for for nearly two years. This week, all of that paperwork and legal wrangling was wrapped up, and the aircraft was flown from Buenos Aires to Florida. Because of course it was. Of course. Where aircraft go to die. Not to be stored, to die. It was flown to the Dade Collier Training and Transition Airport, which, Jason, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this particular airport or its history. But we may have mentioned this airport once or twice on the podcast. The the Dade Collier Training and Transition Airport is in the middle of the Everglades. Wait, is this the the supersonic hub that never happened? Yes. Ah, okay, yeah. Definitely familiar with that place now. So the airport was originally construction in 1968 as the Everglades Jet Port, and then it's been called a variety of things, including the Swamp Port for a while there. And the idea was that it would be one of the world's largest airports, actually the world's largest airport at the time. And it would have served as one of the bases for the Boeing 2707, the, the supersonic aircraft that was under development at the time, which Boeing eventually canceled. And they thought this would be the best place to put this because it was in the middle of the Everglades and you could easily get out over water. The 2707 was canceled, the airport was canceled, and it just kind of sat there. And now it has one 10,500 foot runway and you know does some general aviation. But it can handle 747s, and so they brought the 747-300 there. They're reportedly going to use it as a fire training aircraft. So it, it still has some life in it yet, but it will never fly again. So I'm interested to know who flew it there and who paid to presumably bring it back to life. You know, a 74-300 sitting on the ground for two years probably needs quite a bit of maintenance to get airworthy again. And who operate? Do we know who operated it? The call sign was Tyson two three, but what is that? Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. 
Yeah. The U.S. government was basically doing this to make a show of seizing the plane. Yes. And the, the Venezuelan government, I know, was very upset that Argentina let this happen. Yes. But I'm just really interested to know who paid for this and who operated the flight. But was it Steve? <laughs> I don't think it was Steve. Is he typerated on the, on the 300? Like, if anyone, it's going to be him. We, we I, I don't know. We'll figure this out because this is an interesting one. But now the plane will sit, it will be there, and they will probably use it as a fire trainer. Maybe they'll chop it up a little bit and you can get a piece of it. There are still 747-300s out there that are available to fly on. You do need to have access to some interesting government contacts, I guess, if you want to do that, or you need to be shipped somewhere. So what we've got are the Max Air pair of 747-300s in Nigeria. Transavia Export Airlines in Belarus has one. There's one currently in the Saudi Royal Fleet and Mahan Air currently has two, but I don't think those are flying at the moment. Though you can fly the oldest 747 in the world if you go to Iran. You might need to talk to their military and ask for a ride politely. So I don't suggest you do that if you're coming from a variety of countries, but it's there. Yeah. Okay. That's the end of that chapter, I guess. That that poor aircraft's never going to fly again. No. But you know what older aircraft is going to fly again? Ah, this is a good one. Good transition. Well done. Nolanor is bringing back a 737-200 for gravel runways. So the 737-200- This is exciting. I'm thoroughly excited. If you haven't been following along with our general obsession- I say ours and mine and Jason's, but also Flight Radar 24 in general, because our Gabriel Lee has been on the hunt for a passenger 737-200. For quite some time, we sent him to Zimbabwe. The president of Zimbabwe took the aircraft to Malawi that week that he was there, so he didn't get to fly in it. So we sent him to Venezuela, of all places, at the beginning of the year. And we're currently airing that series on our YouTube channel. So we'll put a link in the show notes to, to check that out. But he had a bit more success this time around. But Nolanor is bringing back the 737-200 for gravel runways. So specifically with the gravel kit, the 200 is one of the only aircraft in the Boeing catalog that is certified for gravel operations. So that's a very important thing to have when you're flying to, to runways in Canada's far north where nothing is paved and runway might be a generous description of what you're landing on. Yeah, I don't really know what the alternative here, at least for a Western-built aircraft, I guess maybe the, the Russian and or Soviet version of this would be the Tu-154, I believe, had a, a gravel kit variant. Obviously not going to end up in Canada in 2024. Maybe a Yak-40. Something like that. But this is not, remember, this is not the Max. This is not the NG. This isn't even the classic. This is the OG, the original version of the 737. It is, of course, the 200, not the 100, but it predates the classic, which is the 300, 400, and 500. So this is this is your granddaddy's 73, and it's going to be around presumably forever at this rate. There is nothing out there. There is no modern aircraft that replaces or can do what this particular aircraft with the gravel kit can do. All the modern aircraft that they're very large low to the ground engines, can't even think about doing what the 200, especially with the gravel kit, can do. So 
Norlin or and, and other airlines like it are, are kind of maybe not stuck with it. Stuck with it's not the right word, but they're they're in a place where they need it. And it's going to be it like and that. they want it. I mean, it's a great airplane. It's a great airplane. It's great for their marketing. I mean, they they love this aircraft. They love to talk about it. But I guess it's going to be around until the point where maybe eVTOLs are mature enough where they could operate into harsh, remote, northern Canadian and likewise destinations. They're not going to run forever, but they're going to keep running for quite a while. And, and there's just nothing today that replaces it. And it's back. And that's very exciting. It is very exciting. And now we have to figure out a way to fly on it. We closed the show this week with uh, a different kind of bird. Jason, what happened? Flamingos happened, or more precisely, oh. flamingo eggs happened. So this is ah. a follow-up to a uh, story from, I believe it was last year, where on board an Alaska Airlines flight, there were Chilean flamingo eggs flying from Atlanta to Seattle. They were on their way to the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle. And a zoo official was transporting the flamingo eggs when the incubator stopped working. And when eggs get cold, they're not going to be happy anymore. And that's a problem. So when the incubator failed, the flight crew jumped into action. They filled up some rubber gloves with hot water, I guess, presumably from a coffee pot, and put the eggs in it and kept the eggs warm and kept them happy. And then we have an update that months, months later, the eggs are no longer eggs. They're, they're flamingos and they're happy flamingos and they hatched. And the uh, flight attendants on board the aircraft that helped out the zoo officials were able to to meet their flamingos. And it's just a, a very funny story that was mainstream enough that I, I, of all places, I read about this on People, People Magazine's website. So this was a pretty mainstream story, but it's just a nice story to read about that, hey, something on board an aircraft happened and flight attendants sprang into action and then flamingos were born. At least they weren't born on the plane, I guess. Uh, not on the plane. But if you want to see these flamingos, presumably you can go to the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle, which I've been to many times, uh, and you can go see some new flamingos that you know have flown Alaska Airlines. <laughs> Those flamingos have flown Alaska Airlines more than I have. Yeah. Oh, their names, by the way, Amber and Sunny were the names of the flight attendants on board that got to meet the baby flamingos. Which I'm, I'm very jealous of. They got to meet the flamingos and like hang out with them. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well, that's fun. That is nice. I like closing the show on good news. That is great news. Oh, do we need the name of the flamingos? I thought, yeah. I mean, what's the number one? Always get the name of the dog. You always get the name of the flamingos. Gonzo, Bernardo, Rosales, Amaya, and Magdalena. The names of of the flamingos. So there you go. It just got better. It got uh -huh. even better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like so it. head on down to the zoo and go meet the flamingos that flew on a 737. Presumably, I guess it could have been an e-jet, right? But those would be whole Horizon or possibly Sky <laughs> West. from Atlanta. We, we don't want to get into that. All right. Before we go down the proudly all Boeing route, Ooh. this has been episode 255 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. <laughs>